Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org. Well, last week we started a two-part series that I've entitled, No Longer Be a Victim. Now, we said last week that victimology is becoming the end thing in this generation. Everybody sees themselves as the victim of something. They're either the victim of a disease or the victim of disaster or the victim of some kind of sexual harassment or sexual violence or the victim of mental abuse or maybe the victim of somebody's prejudice or the victim of an accident. On and on. We're being programmed day in and day out consciously and subconsciously to search for areas where we've been victimized. And it's the scheme of the enemy because any time we see ourselves as the victim of something, then that means that what we've done is we've received it. We've accepted that as our lot in life. And we're not going to get healed. We'll not get delivered. We're not going to see victory ever in that area as long as we continue to see ourselves as a victim there. Now, we can't be the victim of adverse circumstances and be an overcomer at the same time. And that's what I'm wanting us to see tonight. We'll never be an overcomer and still remain a victim of adverse circumstances. We can't have both at the same time. Now, the last time we looked at some ways through which victimization can come in and some results that can come from accepting the role of a victim. Now, this week we're going to be looking at different categories of victimization, and then we're going to look at a Bible study to illustrate each one of these categories. Now, last time we centered in on what happens when somebody falls for the victimization. This week, we're going to look at what happens when you don't fall for it. So this one's more fun. Then we're going to end with four of God's divine escapes from victimization. No matter what the victimization might be, these work. Now, there's a lot to be learned from these different Bible characters. There's a lot to be learned from realizing that they were potential victims. And yet, they didn't accept that role. And because they didn't accept that role as a victim... It's very interesting what followed and what came as a result of that. Now, the first example represents the class of victims who don't feel wanted, a class of victims who feel like they have been defeated in life, like they failed. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 13. Now, one of the major causes of victimization is not feeling wanted. And feeling unwanted can happen anywhere. It can happen among church people. It can happen among family members. It can happen among friends. And especially, it can happen among people who felt unwanted in childhood for one reason or another. Now, this story in Acts chapter 13 is going to cover all the aspects of this kind of situation. I'm going to give you just a little bit of background. Paul and Barnabas had just set out on their first missionary journey, and they've taken John Mark. Barnabas' nephew, they've taken him with them to be a helper. Now, we don't know how old John Mark was at the time, but we know that he was fairly young. And so in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Pampas and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them, and he returned to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why he left. You know, he may have been homesick. Or he may have felt inadequate because of his young age. Or maybe Paul's abrupt personality might have offended him. We don't know. Maybe the dangers and the hardships of a missionary trip were just more than he could take. And maybe it was more 
of an inconvenience than he had anticipated. We don't know why he left, but for whatever reason, John Mark goes home before the trip even gets started good. Now, Paul and Barnabas continue on the trip, and we find in Acts chapter 15, verse 35, that they finally, after much time, they've completed this first missionary journey, and they're back in Antioch. And in verse 36, after they've been preaching and teaching for a while, Paul gets antsy, and he's ready to go again for a second journey. And so in Acts 15, verse 35, Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord, and let's see how they are. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John called Mark along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated one from another. Now, whether John Mark brought this on himself or not, we don't know. But he's still a potential victim of being unwanted. He's also a potential victim of failure. Now, his desertion on this first missionary trip, for whatever reason, it could very well have made him feel like a failure. You know, he could have beat himself over the head and he could have thought, I just can't believe that I quit right in the middle of the journey. I'm just a quitter. I'm never going to amount to anything. I see a lot of people give up over things a lot less significant than this. And then to add fuel to the fire, we find out that Paul rejects him so openly and even argues sharply with Barnabas and finally breaks up with Barnabas. And this just added more to John Mark, just made him feel more like a failure. That would have made anyone feel badly about that. And so we see that all of this could very well have put the finishing touches on the rejection and the failure syndrome for most people. Now, John Mark knew that he was responsible for the breaking up of Paul and Barnabas as a team. He knew that. He knew that he was the one that had caused them to go separate ways. Now, he was definitely a victim of not feeling wanted. Paul never hid the fact from him that he didn't want him on that trip. So John Mark was a victim. Now, I've seen so many people leave at this point. You know, once they've been rejected or once they feel like they're not wanted, they either inwardly or sometimes even outwardly, they'll just say, okay, if that's what they want, then that's what I'll give them. And they leave at that point. But see, the Bible teaches us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against principalities and huge numbers of wicked spirits in the spiritual realm. Now, John Mark could have accepted this as a defeat because of Paul's disagreement over him, and he could have quietly just stepped out, and we probably would never have heard of him again. So we find that John Mark is definitely at a crossroad in his walk with the Lord, because, see, a decision to continue seeing himself as a victim would have meant utter failure, and that probably would have been the last constructive thing that he ever did for the kingdom of God. Now, even though he could very well have felt victimized, we find that he didn't do it. He didn't do that, and I want you to see what the result is. First of all, John Mark had the guts to go ahead and go on that second missionary journey and conquer whatever it was that made him quit the first time. He went on with his Uncle Barnabas and headed for Cyprus. If you'll look there at the last part of verse 39, it says Barnabas took Mark with him and he sailed away to Cyprus. So he gained valuable experience here. He stayed with him the whole time. 
And then I want you to look and see what happened between him and Paul because of this. I want you to look at 2 Timothy 4 verse 11. The reason I want you to look this one up, I want you to mark it in your Bible. I'm so glad that we have this one sentence in Paul's letter so that we could see the end of the story. Hadn't been for this, we wouldn't have known what took place between uh, Paul and, and Mark. Now, this is one of the last letters that Paul wrote. He wrote it to Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, Paul said, Only Luke is with me. He said, Pick up Mark. He's talking about John Mark. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. I love that scripture. See, Mark had refused to be a victim back there. He refused to see himself as a failure. He saw himself as an overcomer, and he became just exactly that. He became an overcomer and a vital asset to the very one who had rejected him. He even went on to write one of the four Gospels. Now, that's what God's wanting. He's wanting us to put ourselves in a position where we determine that even if we don't think we're wanted by someone, even if we think we got a raw deal in some area, that we decide that we're going to go on with God we're going to refuse the victim mentality and we're going to allow God to make us the overcomer that he wants us to be. Now, we can even become a vital asset to the very one that has rejected us. Now, just because you fail in some area or just because you've been rejected by someone, it can be even someone spiritual like Paul, it doesn't mean that we have to quit. It doesn't mean that we're a failure. John Mark overcame that victimization. He overcame the rejection. He overcame the temptation to see himself as a failure, and he became an overcomer not only in man's eyes, but in God's eyes. Now, I'm thankful that he kept after it because the Gospel of Mark is one of my favorite books. Now, becoming an overcomer is the result of refusing to see yourself as a victim. I'm going to be saying that several times because that's the key. Anytime we fail to see ourselves as a victim in a certain area, we're going to be able to go on in that area to become an overcomer. Okay, the next category, I want you to turn to Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22, and we'll start with verse 1. This is the story of Abraham and Isaac as they're heading for Mount Moriah. And it came about after these things that God proved Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God told him. Now on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and he saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship, and we'll return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. Now this is important. This lets us know that he's old enough to carry the wood. So he has to be old enough to know what's going on. And he took the wood in his hand, and then Abraham took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood. 
he bound his son Isaac, he laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and then Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. I want you to see what's taking place here. He's built an altar, he's arranged the wood, and then he ties his son's hands, lays him up on top of the wood, and stretches out his hand with the knife. Okay, now... We've talked a lot about the faith of Abraham to be willing to offer his son as a sacrifice. But how many times have we thought what was going on in the mind of Isaac? Now this is the example of a victim of trauma. You need to mark that down. A lot of people have undergone traumatic experiences that would fall into this category. Now Abraham did not explain to Isaac what was going on because back up here in verse 7 we find that Isaac is questioning his father about the sacrifice. So what do you think was going on in Isaac's mind when his father takes and binds his hand and fixes the wood and places him up on the altar and picks up his knife to kill him? See, he's helped his father with enough sacrifices to know that a sacrifice is always killed and burned. So he knows what's fixing to happen. There's no question in his mind. Now, Isaac didn't know that an angel was going to come and stop Abraham. So in Isaac's mind, he's just as good as dead. Now, situations a lot less dramatic than this have set up a victim mentality in a lot of people that destroyed the rest of their life. But see, Isaac refused to be the victim, and he goes on to live up to be the man that God intended him to be. In fact, he goes on to be the one to receive again that covenant that God had originally given to Abraham. We find later that he gives that same covenant to Isaac. See, becoming an overcomer is the result of refusing to see ourselves as a victim. Okay, the next example. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. Now, there's such a victim mentality in today's society in females. I see women all the time, and I read about women who are emotional cripples because of being a victim of their husband's rejection. Now, that's the next category. I want us to look at the rejection that Abraham put Sarah through. Now, we've looked at this story many times from Abraham's point of view. But I want us to read it this time with Sarah in mind. Put yourself in Sarah's place. Okay, in Genesis chapter 12, the first part of verse chapter 12, God has given this great promise to Abraham that he's going to make of him a great nation and all of his descendants are going to be blessed and the whole world's going to be blessed through him. And then in verse 10, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman, and it will come about that when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they'll let you live. So we see here a lack of trust in God. He's not trusting in the promise that God's given him. Please say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you, that I may live on account of you. So he's playing with her sympathy. And it came about that when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, Abraham's actions here were cowardly, they were selfish, and he certainly wasn't trusting God. And we think, well, that's terrible. But, you know, very seldom do we stop and think what was going on inside of 
Sarah to be rejected by her husband simply because he feared for his life. And then being forced into strange surroundings where she knew that she would be sexually used by a strange man. And then facing the possibility of that being her life from then on. Being one of the king's concubines and having to live there with the other concubines. That was the thing that that had to have been going through Sarah's mind. Because she could see that as being her destiny. Now, the scripture indicates here that Abraham allowed the king to just do with her whatever. To save his own life. Now, I don't know many women any more victimized than that. And as if that weren't enough, if you'll look over in Genesis chapter 20, this gives us the example of the category of people who are victimized repeatedly in the same area. See, Sarah is also a victim of repeated victimization. In chapter 20, verse 1, much time has gone by. Many years have gone by. And in verse 1, Abraham journeys down and comes to Gerar. And in verse 2, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, the king, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she's married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you've done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, it's almost unthinkable that this could have happened twice. Now, if this had happened to a woman in today's society, she'd probably have gone through years of psychotherapy trying to get over that. But see, Sarah didn't see herself as a victim. That's the key. She never saw herself as a victim. She trusted God and she didn't fear. The New Testament tells us that she trusted without fear. And she became an overcomer because of not allowing herself to become a victim. Becoming an overcomer is the result of refusing to see yourself as a victim. You need to to write that down and hear that until it, it gets locked down on the inside of you. Okay, the next category is that of being victimized by foul play. Now, we hear situations in the news constantly about people who have fallen into someone's hands and they've been the victim of foul play. There's all kinds of foul play that's going on in the world today. So let's look at this victim. Look at Genesis chapter 37. Now, Joseph was the younger brother of ten older stepbrothers, and they were jealous of him. In chapter 37, verse 13, we find that Israel, or Jacob, the father, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. So he was more than willing to go. And he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Then we find out in verse 17 that when he got there, the man said, well, they've moved from here. But I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, when they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. 
And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say that a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, No, let's don't take his life. Okay, look on at verse 23. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. They took him and they threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. And down in verse 28, Then some Midianite traders passed by. So they pulled him up, lifted Joseph out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Okay, now he was 17 years old at the time that he was taken and sold into a foreign land into slavery. Then from there we find that he was falsely accused and he was thrown into prison and he was kept there for many years. In fact, it was 13 long years before he was delivered. 13 years. 13 years of slavery and then over 22 years of being separated from his family. Now, most people would have definitely seen themselves as a victim in this case. But in each one of these situations, we find that Joseph refused to see himself as a victim. In fact, he excelled in the midst of every one of these circumstances simply because he didn't see himself as a victim. Back when he was a slave in Potiphar's house, Potiphar had finally put him in charge of the entire household. Of course, then he was falsely accused and thrown into prison. But when he gets into prison... He's put in charge of all the prisoners. Now, in spite of the disappointment, in spite of all these years of unfair punishment, he never saw himself as a victim. He continued to trust God. And one day, then, he was released from all of this and he was put in charge of the land of Egypt. He was exalted to the place of honor right next to the Pharaoh himself. Even when he found himself in a position to punish his brothers for all that they had put him through and for everything that he had suffered, he still refused to do that. Look over at chapter 45, Genesis 45, starting with verse 4. Joseph said to his brothers, Please come nearer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. It's been 22 years, and you know they're shocked. They, they have no idea that this is their brother. And then he says, Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Okay, now the reason that he could forgive his brothers is because he never saw himself as a victim. He never allowed himself to feel victimized. Okay, then the last category that we'll look at is that of being victimized by persecution or by unfair treatment from someone that's over us in authority. Now, David is a prime example of this. He was victimized by persecution. He was victimized by total injustice and unfair treatment. And it was by someone that was over him. See, King Saul loved David one moment, and he was trying to kill him the next moment. He was forced to flee from the palace. He was forced to hide like an animal in caves for years. And many times there would be the army right on the other side of the mountain, and he would hear them coming after them. You can read about this in 1 Samuel. So when you read this part of David's life, you realize that this was quite a case of victimization. Now, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2, that the men who came to be with David were in distress, they were in debt, 
and they were discontent. Don't you know that was a grumbling bunch if they were in debt, in distress, and discontent? You'd call that really adding injury to insult or insult to injury. Okay, at one point we find that David even had to pretend that he was insane and allow the drool to go down his beard to keep himself from being killed. Another time, he and his band of men came back to Ziklag and they found that everything that they owned was burned to the ground. All of their children and, and their wives had been taken. And the men got so distraught that they threatened to kill David. They were going to stone David as if it were his fault. Now, he could have felt very victimized here by life in general. He could have felt very victimized by the king, by the government. He could have felt victimized by his so-called friends. He could have felt victimized by God. See, he had the opportunity of seeing everyone as an enemy. But do you know what David chose to do instead? Later look up 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. But it said that he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And then he went before the Lord and he asked God what it was that he was to do. See, David never allowed himself to be the victim. And that's why he could go on to become the greatest king of Israel. That's why he went on to become a man after God's own heart. That's why he became a success, because he never saw himself as a victim. Now, I could give you examples for the next hour right out of the Word of God, but it all boils down to the choice of the one who has been victimized. You know, not long ago, there was a girl being interviewed on a talk show, and she had been brutally raped two years before. And the guy who was doing the interviewing said, you're different than most victims of rape. He said, it doesn't seem to have affected you as adversely as it does most. And I think that her answer was such a key to what we're talking about today. She said, that man stole 30 minutes of my life. But she said, I decided that he was not going to get one minute more. That was the key. Now, we've all had unfortunate things happen to us. But what determines whether or not we're going to remain a victim is whether or not we decide that we're going to forgive and forget it and move on or whether we're going to allow that experience to continue to rob us by continuing to see ourselves as a victim. And every bit of it is going to take place right up here. It's what we decide in our mind. Now, some people have had something go wrong for 30 minutes or more that literally ruined the rest of their life. Now, I'm not minimizing rape, and I'm not minimizing any other traumatic experience. That's certainly not what I'm doing. But it does boil down to the fact that it doesn't have to ruin our life. And the reason it doesn't have to ruin our life is because of what Christ Jesus did. Because of Christ, we can forgive, we can forget, and we can move on. Now, it may mean forgiving ourselves for something we've done. It may mean forgiving somebody else. But God wants us to come to a place where we don't keep reliving the things that we've been through. Now, Satan may come in with an unhappy experience, and it may be an argument, it may be an ugly exchange of words, or it might be something even worse than that. But when that happens, then we're at a crossroad where we have to decide whether we're going to give him any more of our life or not. And the way we give him more is by continuing to think on it, continuing to relive it. See, when Satan takes something, we can use our authority in the name of Jesus and demand that he return it sevenfold. Or we can decide that we're going to continue giving him more and giving him more. And of course, the way we do that is just continuing to live in that victimization. 
Now, the girl who was right decided that that 30 minutes was all that she was going to allow the enemy to take from her. Now, very quickly, in closing, there are four necessary escapes from victimization, and these are very important. They work no matter what the victimization might be. But number one is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a must, or you're going to be stuck in your situation forever. See, to every person with whom we hold unforgiveness, there is an invisible card. It's like an umbilical card that ties us to that person. Even the grave doesn't break the card. Now, remember, forgiveness is a choice. It's not a feeling. Now, the feelings will eventually come when we make the choice, but we have to forgive for that card to be broken. Otherwise, we're going to be tied to that person in a very negative way all of our life. Now, let me give you one example. I read this article about a 28-year-old girl who had been diagnosed with acute MS. And she was told that she would be the victim of a wheelchair in less than six months. Now, her friends decided at this point that they were going to take her somewhere to be prayed for. And when they got her to the people that were going to pray for her, they mentioned unforgiveness, and she very quickly said, okay, I've taken care of all of that. Well, they kept probing, and, and they were taking her through deliverance, and finally, they just kept insisting that she needed to forgive someone. And they said all of a sudden, this fountain just began to flow, and it was two hours later, and she had forgiven 180 people clear back to her childhood. All of it had just been packed in all of those years. And what happened, it had finally just weakened her body. Now, she forgave 180 people and she got healed. And this minister said that he still gets letters from her from time to time and she's still healed. No symptoms of MS. So forgiveness is a must. Okay, the number two escape. We need to remember that victims justify anything and everything. Justification is very big in a victim's life because, after all, there has been an injustice that's happened to them. But if we want to be an overcomer, we're going to have to stop justifying ourselves, period. We have to come to a place where we say, I'm not going to justify it anymore. No matter how unfair it was, I will not justify it any longer in my life. So we need to stop justifying our negative outlook because of our misfortune. Now, it's a misconception to think that time will heal those areas where we've been victimized. Because time doesn't heal. Time just builds scars. The only thing, one that can heal these areas is the Lord. Now, even if we have been legitimately mistreated, we need to come to a place where we don't justify or hang on to any attitude that doesn't line up with the Word of God. Now, for example, we need to come to a place where we don't hang on to attitudes like, well, so-and-so is always putting me down, or my parents were always telling me what to do, or they favored my brother, or they favored my sister, or I can't do anything to please my husband, or my boss, you know, is so unfair, he never gives me a chance. Why try? Nothing ever works. That's so unfair. See, those are victim statements, and if you'll look in your life, you'll see some things that are victim statements that you use. And if you'll watch for those, the Lord will begin to show you victim statements that you've used from time to time. Now, maybe we, we've taken care of some things like unforgiveness and judgmental attitudes, and that's good. But we need to take care of a victim mentality. See, a victim mentality justifies its right to feel victimized. That's what a victim mentality will do. So we need to quit identifying with those areas where we feel like we've been victimized because that's not our identity. 
See, our identity is in Christ Jesus. Okay, number three, escape from victimization, is the appropriation of what Christ did on the cross. Jesus literally became a victim for us, just like he became sin for us in our behalf. He became a victim for us in order that we don't have to be a victim now. See, he was rejected by men. He was rejected by family. He was rejected by his friends. He was ridiculed. He was laughed at. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was falsely accused. He was nailed to a cross. And then the worst victimization of all was that he felt abandoned by God when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? See, he took every bit of that for us so that we now can refuse the role of a victim. We've been totally redeemed from victimization. Okay, then the fourth and the final escape from victimization is trust. We're going to have to trust before we can make ourselves vulnerable enough to be healed. I'm going to say that again. We're going to have to learn how to trust before we'll ever make ourselves vulnerable enough to be healed. See, trust does not come from having been healed. Trust is a choice on our part that we have to make first so that the healing can come. Now, a lot of people think, well, when I get healed, then I'm going to be able to trust. But it doesn't work that way. We've got the cart before the horse. We have to come to a place where we make ourselves vulnerable and we trust. And when we do, then the healing can come in. Then we can receive the healing that the Lord has for us. Now, becoming an overcomer is the result of refusing to see yourself as a victim anymore. And we're going to have to break free emotionally because it's in the emotional realm. Now, since so much of the victimization stems back to childhood, we're going to have to leave behind all the family curses that bind us up. We're going to have to leave behind all our family genetics. We're not a victim to that anymore. We're going to have to leave behind all of the family prejudices and all of the, the family selfishness. We're going to have to leave behind any sicknesses and diseases that uh, were typical of our family bloodline. And we're going to have to realize we're not a victim to that. We're going to have to leave every bit of that behind because all those things hold us into victimization. We're going to have to break free emotionally by coming into trust. And we come into trust the Lord and trust what his word says, then we can break free of that because we'll believe what God's word says more than we believe these things that are trying to hang on to us. Becoming an overcomer is the result of refusing to see ourselves as a victim any longer. Father, thank you that we no longer have to be victimized. Lord, I know there's a lot of people who have gone through a lot of things that they're tough. But Lord, I thank you that you've made a way for us to escape out of that. You've made a way, Lord, where we can be healed and we can forgive and we can be set free and we can move on with our life. And Father, I am so thankful for that. Lord, thank you that you've shown us this avenue where the enemy has tried to come in and make the entire world feel victimized. But Lord, I thank you that where evil abounds, there the grace of God abounds much more. And so Lord, I thank you that where victimization is is lurking at every corner, Father, I thank you that we can be set free through what Christ Jesus did. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to become a victim for us in order that we can be set free from it. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. 
Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.